It's my privilege to be with you this morning. Thank you for having me. Um, I have many reasons for wanting to come to the West Coast, not least that my daughter is here. Not here, but on the West Coast, at least. And um, uh, for the last uh, little while, the TGC links that have uh, begun in the Chicago area have reached across this land into many countries, including now TGC Korea, um, so that uh, our bonds of organization and gospel promulgation and so on uh, are overlapping on many fronts. So I had the privilege of meeting Pastor Steve Chang uh, some months back, and it's good to renew contact again. Now, if you would open your Bibles and turn in them or turn them on, as the case may be, uh, to Matthew chapter 11, I'll read verses 2 to 19. Matthew chapter 11, verses 2 to 19. I'm reading from the NIV. But by all means, uh, any version here will be sufficient. Matthew 11, beginning at verse 2. When John, that is John the Baptist, when John, who was in prison, heard about the deeds of the Messiah, he sent his disciples to ask him, are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? Jesus replied, go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk. Those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. As John's disciples were leaving, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed swayed by the wind? If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No, those who wear fine clothes are in king's palaces. Then what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. Truly, I tell you, among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet, Whoever is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been subjected to violence, and violent people have been raiding it. For all the prophets in the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to accept it, he is the Elijah who was to come. Whoever has ears, let them hear. To what can I compare this generation? They are like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling out to others. We played the pipe for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking and they say, He has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking and they say, Here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is proved right by her deeds. This is the word of the Lord. I wonder if there's anyone in this room who, upon rising this morning and first seeing his or her face in the mirror, said, 
I'm greater than the prophet Isaiah. Or alternatively, good morning, faith. I'm greater than King David. Or greater than Moses. Well, on the face of it, it seems ridiculous to think that any Christian would say something like that. But take another look at verse 11. That seems to suggest you ought to be saying it. Do you consider yourself amongst the least in the kingdom? This text says that John the Baptist is greater than all who came before him. And the least in the kingdom, would you say that you're amongst the least in the kingdom? The least in the kingdom is greater than John the Baptist. So if the least in the kingdom, that's you and me, is greater than John the Baptist, and John the Baptist is greater than Moses or Isaiah or David or Abraham, then aren't you greater than these chaps too? Now, on the face of it, you still have to explain that. Greater in what sense? No one would accuse me of being greater than King David in military prowess or a greater legislator than Moses or a greater prophet than Isaiah, a greater wise man than Solomon, and so on and so on. Yet clearly, Jesus holds that the comparison he's making is an important one. He starts off by saying, truly I tell you. That's a way of saying, listen up, what I'm saying is important. John the Baptist is greater than all of them. And the least in the kingdom is greater than John. In what sense? Well, To answer that question and then to see how it has a bearing on how we understand ourselves, who we are as Christians, it's most helpful to argue through the flow of the logic in the passage, to follow the flow of the argument. And for this purpose, it'll be easiest if we divide the text into three parts. Number one, portrait of a discouraged Baptist. That's John the Baptist. I'm not speaking denominationally. Portrait of a discouraged Baptist, verses 2 to 6. We're introduced to John in the context it shows us John the Baptist, who is in prison, we're told. He was in the prison of Machedas. He had been arrested and put there because he had criticized the local petty monarch, Herod, for his marital arrangements. Now, he was in prison in Machedas, but he wasn't closely, closely guarded. He had disciples who could come and bring him food and clothes probably and carry messages and so on. And, and so he, he can communicate with the outside world through his own disciples. And he hears in prison, we're told, what the Messiah was doing, what the Christ was doing. Now, normally when Matthew refers to Jesus, he just calls him Jesus. Jesus said this or Jesus went there. But here he does not say when John heard in prison what Jesus was doing, but he says when John heard in prison what the Messiah was doing, what the Christ was doing. Because he wants his readers, that's you and me, to remember just who it is that John is doubting. Now in Matthew's presentation, what has the Messiah been doing? Well, he's been preaching, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, to vast crowds, the Sermon on the Mount. He's been performing a series of spectacular miracles, Matthew 8 and 9. And in Matthew 10, he's been organizing trainee missions. And in every case, the numbers are growing bigger and there's a few sparks from the Pharisees and so on. But 
but it's pretty spectacular ministry. And when John the Baptist hears in prison what the Messiah was doing, teaching, miracles, training others, he has doubts. Why? Now, you really mustn't duck the fact that John the Baptist had doubts about Jesus' identity. Are you the one who was to come? He asks his, he tells his disciples to ask Jesus, or should we be looking for somebody else? Did we goof here? Did we make a mistake? The question is, why? In fact, you have to see that John the Baptist really is disappointed in what he hears Jesus is doing. Why should he be discouraged? Both the Old Testament and the New Testament, not to mention church history, not least Korean history, has given us evidence of many Christian sufferers and martyrs for the cause of Christ who face the threat of death and death itself with immense courage. And here's John the Baptist in prison, but comfortable prison. He doesn't know he's going to lose his head in three more chapters. And he's got doubts. Why? Well, the place to begin to answer that question is to remind ourselves of what expectations John the Baptist had about Jesus. And here the simplest thing to do is to go back to Matthew chapter 3, which gives us some summaries of John the Baptist's sermons. For example, in chapter 3, verse 11, we read, John the Baptist saying, I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. So he announced the coming of the Messiah, of the Christ, who would bring in the end of the age, Gather the wheat into barns, that is, the righteous to their reward, and burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. There would be both eschatological blessing and eschatological vengeance and judgment. That's what he expected the Messiah to do. But what is the evidence on hand? He's preaching great sermons to great crowds. He's performing miracles. He's gathering people together in trainee missions. Where's the fire? Where's the judgment? Where's the gathering of people into, into chaff to be burned on the day of judgment? Are you the one that really we are looking for? Or should we expect somebody else? So Jesus answers John the Baptist via those same disciples. He sends a message back. And what he does in the first place, in verses 4 and 5 is summarize his own ministry in words drawn from the prophecy of Isaiah. Verse 4. Go back and report to John, to John the Baptist, what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Now, all but one of those brief clauses summarizing Jesus' ministry are drawn from two passages in Isaiah. First, Isaiah 35, 5 and 6. Then will the eyes of the blind be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped. 
Then will the lame leap like a deer, the mute tongue shout for joy. And again, in Isaiah chapter 61, verse 1, the servant of the Lord says, The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. Again, a a phrase that Jesus picks up and applies to himself. So Jesus is saying, you want to know if I'm the promised Messiah or not? Look, I'm fulfilling these descriptions of what the Messiah will do from the prophecy of Isaiah. But there is something else. You know how when you're a diligent Bible reader, you can hear a phrase quoted from a chapter and you can remember the entire context of the chapter? So, I tell you the truth, you must be born again. What chapter? That's not a rhetorical question. Tell me. John, chapter 3. And it concerns Jesus' interview with Nicodemus. And I didn't have to quote the whole thing and mention that he was a leader of the Sanhedrin and he came to Jesus by night. You remember all of that just from your regular Bible reading. Now, if I had quoted a clip from Zechariah or Haggai, you might not have recognized it maybe, but but there are lots and lots of passages where you you would recognize them simply because of your regular Bible reading. So when Jesus quoted these clauses from Isaiah 35 and Isaiah 61... John the Baptist would have recognized their contexts. We know that John the Baptist knew well the prophecy of Isaiah because elsewhere he himself quotes the prophecy of Isaiah. He says that he's the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. That's drawn from Isaiah. He understood his own ministry in terms of the prophecy of Isaiah. So when Jesus quoted these words from Isaiah 35... And Isaiah 61 and said, look, here's the evidence that I'm the Messiah, doing what the Messiah has promised to do. John the Baptist would have thought, wait, 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 wait a minute. There's a context there. Don't forget the context. Yes, in Isaiah 35 we read, then will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped and so on. But two verses earlier are lines which Jesus did not quote. We read, Strengthen the feeble hands, steady the knees that give way. Say to those with fearful hearts, be strong, do not fear. Your God will come. He will come with vengeance, with divine retribution. He will come to save you. Jesus left that bit out. And in Isaiah 61, yes, yes. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, yes. But in the next verse, also to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. Jesus left that bit out. And John the Baptist would have known that Jesus left it out. And Jesus would have known that John the Baptist knew that Jesus left it out. So is Jesus proof texting and ignoring the context? No, he explains in the next verse of our text, Matthew chapter 11, verse 6. He quotes the words from Isaiah that show that what he's doing is, in truth, fulfilling the words of blessing that the Messiah will bring. And then he adds, 11.6, Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying, Listen, John, look around. 
the days of the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecies, the days of the, the onset of kingdom blessings is here. It's happened. People are, are living. The blind are seeing. The deaf are hearing. These are messianic blessings. The gospel is preached to the poor. Those days are here. They've dawned. And if the days of judgment have not yet come, well, verse 6, blessed is the one who doesn't stumble on account of me. In other words, persevere, John. Press on. Don't quit now. Don't stumble. In, in other words, John did not have a very clear view that the days of the messianic blessing would be starting with the Messiah, but the days of judgment were off still in the future. He wanted the whole thing to come together. So he had predicted, he had preached himself back in Matthew chapter 3. Um, yes, he, he will come, this Messiah, and he will gather the wheat into barns and the chaff will burn up. And then he's worried because he's not seeing any chaff burning up. And Jesus is saying, in effect, the day will come. Meanwhile, blessed is the one who does not stumble on account of me. Press on. Persevere. So, that's the first section. Portrait of a discouraged Baptist. And we should remind ourselves before we leave these verses that sometimes when people go into a depression, it's because they're entertaining false expectations. Now, there can be many reasons for depression and discouragement, of course. But one of them is false expectations. For example, if you come from a secular background and you become a Christian and, and you become a Christian in a context which tells you that once you become a Christian, you'll always be healthy and you'll always be rich and you'll always be wise, um, then you discover that you have terminal cancer and uh, you're finding it hard to meet your mortgage payment and you do make stupid decisions after all. Um, then, then you start asking yourself, is this Christianity real? Is this, is this, is this right? It's because your expectations have been false and you, you can go into a deep depression, do you see? Or I've, I've had my suffering, so now I'm free from it. I've, I've, I've paid my dues with, with, uh, with, with my chemo treatments. Um, so what's the Lord doing to me now that I've, I've, I've got sarcoidosis? Um, but, but it's a false expectation. We all live in a, in a condemned world. We live under the, the, the impact of sin and judgment. Uh, there's nothing in the Bible that says that just because you're a Christian, you'll escape all malady. Even the Apostle Paul can say, Trophimus, have I left behind? Sick. Of course Paul prayed for him, but sometimes the Lord said no, even to Paul's intercessory prayers. So part of what is needed to get rid of the discouragement is to have a more accurate understanding of what Holy Scripture says. If, you, if your basis for understanding God is a few carefully selected proof texts and you really do not understand or follow the line of reasoning throughout all of Scripture, then it's easy to construct and entertain false expectations which, when they're not met, can lead you to discouragement. Do, do, do you see? And that's one of the causes of John the Baptist's discouragement. Portrait of a discouraged Baptist. Second, portrait of a defended Baptist. It appears that Jesus had his conversation with the followers of John the Baptist in front of a larger crowd, just as a speaker, for example, at a convention may be talking with three or four people, but others are pressing in and listening in after the meeting and overhearing the conversation, do you see? That's clearly what's gone on here. Some people have overheard what Jesus said to the disciples of John the Baptist. And so we read, verse 7, as John's disciples were leaving, presumably to carry Jesus' words back to John the Baptist, 
Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. Now earlier, John the Baptist had borne witness to who Jesus is. Now Jesus is bearing witness to who John the Baptist is. And this is what he says to the crowd. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? That is when you went out to hear John preached. He regularly preached by the Jordan and elsewhere. In, in, out in the wilderness areas. What did you go out to the wilderness to see? Why did you go out to listen to John? What did you expect? Hmm? What did you expect? A reed swayed by the wind. That is no backbone. No gumption. No principle. Just a pushover. Is that why you went to listen to John the Baptist? Hmm? You can see what's going on. They're listening into the conversation Jesus had with the disciples of John, and they're saying to themselves, feeling quite superior, well, John the Baptist turned out to be a bit of a disappointment, didn't he? Hmm. No courage. You throw him in jail and he loses all his courage. He's a bit of a wimp. And Jesus says, you don't have the right to talk about John that way. After all, when you went out to listen to him, was it because you thought he was a wimp? A reed swayed by the wind? Is that what you expected from him? You don't have the right to talk to him that way. Well, if not that, what did you go to listen to him for? Because he was posh? He flaunted his wealth and you were impressed? A man dressed in fine clothes, is that what you went out to see? In those days, there wasn't much of a middle class. It was working class people with relatively poor clothes and the aristocrats and the nobility, fewer of them, who lived in palaces and stately homes. So when you went out to the desert to hear John the Baptist preach, were you going because you heard he was posh? No, he, he, he wore the traditional simple clothing of a, of, a, of a prophet and he ate things like wild honey and locusts. You didn't go to him because he was posh. No, those who wear fine clothes are in king's palaces, like the little petty king that has put John in prison. So is this why you went out to hear this man? Is that what drew you to him? Don't you dare talk of him in disparaging terms and condescending judgments as if he's a wimp or a, a fickle boaster. Oh, okay, then what did you go out to see? If it wasn't that, what did you go to see? Verse 9, a prophet? Yes, Jesus says, you went out to hear a prophet. You went out to hear someone who was speaking the words of God. You, you recognize that intrinsically, intuitively. But I tell you, he was more than a prophet. What? In what sense is John the Baptist more than a prophet? Yes, he was a prophet. He, he, he spoke the words of God. In fact, there's a lovely passage in John 10 that speaks of this man, John the Baptist, preaching the words of God. John 10, 42, Jesus went back across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing in the early days. There he stayed and many people came to him. They said, this is great. Though John never performed a sign, that is, he never performed a miracle, all that John said about this man, Jesus, was true. And in that place, many believed in Jesus. Do you hear that? Wouldn't that be a great epitaph to have on your gravestone? Steve Chang did no miracle, but all that he said about Jesus was true. That's what was said about John the Baptist. He was a prophet. But now Jesus says he's more than a prophet. In what sense is he more than a prophet? Well, the next verse tells us. He's more than a prophet because he's actually the object of a prophecy, a particular prophecy, the prophecy of Malachi. 
This is the one about whom it is written, Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. God will send, he says, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. Now, in the argument of Malachi, this messenger whom God sends before the coming of the Messiah is Elijah. Elijah come back, a man who's coming in the spirit of Elijah himself. And that's what makes John the Baptist unique. He's more than a prophet. He's a prophet. He speaks the word of God. But he's also the subject of a prophecy. And then Jesus says these remarkable words in 11a. Truly I tell you, among those born of women, there is not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. What is the logic here? What's tying this together? Now suppose this morning, after Steve Chang had graciously introduced me, I had got up and said, Brothers and sisters in Christ, hear the word of the Lord. Steve Chang is the greatest man born of women because he introduced me. I suspect I would have instantly lost a great deal of credibility. And maybe somebody would be phoning for people in white coats to escort me off to the nearest institution. But that's what Jesus says. Do do, do you see? According to Malachi, there's one like Elijah coming, this man called John the Baptist, who who introduced Jesus with greater immediacy and clarity than all before him. You, You see, there is a sense in which Abraham points to Jesus. There's a sense in which Moses points to Jesus. There's a sense in which David points to Jesus and Isaiah points to Jesus. But it fell to only one man, the man spoken about by the prophet Malachi, who would say, there, that's the one. And that's what makes John so great. It's stunning that in Jesus' view, John the Baptist is greater than Moses. John the Baptist is greater than David. John the Baptist is greater than Isaiah. John the Baptist is greater than Abraham. He's greater than all of them. All born of women, which is a fairly comprehensive list. He's greater than all of them because to him fell the responsibility and privilege of pointing out with greater immediacy and clarity who Jesus is than all who came before him. After all, although John had some intimations, all right, of who Jesus is, this is chapter 11. In three more chapters, in chapter 14, he's going to lose his head. Literally. Which means he doesn't live long enough to see Jesus dying on the cross. He certainly doesn't live long enough to see Christ risen from the dead. He's not among the 500 who in various combinations saw Jesus risen from the dead, according to the Apostle Paul. He never saw that. So although he had the privilege of pointing out who Jesus is with greater immediacy and clarity than all who came before, he didn't see who Jesus was with the clarity that the least Christian enjoys. And that brings us to the third portrait portrait of a discouraged Baptist, portrait of a defended Baptist, now portrait of an eclipsed Baptist. Look at verse 11, A and B. A, truly I tell you, among those born of women, there is not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet, 
Whoever is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Now for this verse to make sense, the comparison offered in the first part of the verse between John the Baptist and those who came before must be on the same axis as the comparison in the second part of the verse. That is between the least Christian, that's you and me, and John the Baptist. This verse is saying that the least Christian can point out Jesus with greater immediacy and clarity than John the Baptist could. Because he lost his head in chapter 14. He did not survive to see Jesus resurrected. After all, the apostles themselves didn't get it right until after the events. There's Peter, for example, in Matthew 16, five chapters after our current chapter, announcing, yes, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus says, you are blessed, Simon, son of John, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. But although Jesus, uh, although Peter got it right, Jesus really is the Messiah, what Peter meant by Messiah was not entirely in line with what you and I think Messiah means today. When you and I talk about Jesus the Messiah, we can't abstract his being the Christ, the Messiah, from the fact that he died and rose again. We, we cannot think of Jesus not crucified, not risen from the dead. That's part of basic Christian belief. But Peter didn't see that. Not at that point. Because when Jesus goes on to talk about how the Messiah must go to Jerusalem and be beaten up and crucified, suffer many things and die, and rise again the third day, Peter chimes in, never, Lord, that'll never happen to you. In his understanding of Messiahship at that juncture, Messiahs win, especially a Messiah who can do the miracles that Jesus does. To talk of dying and failure and suffering is ridiculous. He can raise people from the dead. He can still the storms. He can control nature. How could he possibly lose? Do you see? And even as late as when Jesus is dead and buried... In the tomb, and Peter and his friends are in an upstairs room, is Peter saying with the others, mm, yes, I could hardly wait till Sunday. No, he's not. He's living in fear that he'll be arrested next. He hasn't come to grips with what Jesus had actually said. Five times in Matthew, Jesus predicted he would be crucified and, and would rise from the dead on the third day. Peter had heard all those uh, predictions, but, but the, the penny hadn't dropped. It, it still hadn't dropped. It wasn't until after Jesus had risen from the dead that they put a lot more of the pieces together. Do, do, do you see? So it's not too surprising if John the Baptist didn't have all the pieces, pieces put together either. But you know what? The least Christian on these points gets it right. I don't know you. But I imagine there are some of you here who have been converted quite recently. Some of you have been Christians for decades. But even if you're someone who's been a Christian for six weeks, you may say, you know, I don't know much about the Bible. I'm not very good at explaining Things that you talk about, like Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy. Father is God, the Son is God, the Spirit is God, but there's one God. I, I'm not good at stuff like that. But I do know that Jesus died on the cross for my sins. I do know that he rose again the third day. I, I do know that because he bore my sin, I'm accepted before God. 
I do know that I, I must abandon myself to him to, 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 to just trust him because he died for me and rose again. God, it's as if God looks at me through Jesus. I, I know that. I know that I have eternal life. You see, you might be a Christian for only six weeks, but you can say that, can't you? And that's more than John the Baptist could say. In other words, the least Christian can point out with greater clarity and immediacy who Jesus is than John the Baptist could. And John the Baptist could point out who Jesus is with greater immediacy and clarity than all who came before him could. And in Jesus' view, our greatness is tied to our ability because of where we stand in the stream of redemptive history to point out who Jesus is with greater clarity and immediacy than all who came in earlier generations. Now the rest of the verses down to verse 19 anchor this argument I don't have time to go through it in great detail. Let me just draw your attention to some of the logic of it so that you can see the general flow. Jesus goes on to say, from the days of John the Baptist, verse 12, until now. That is, from the days when John the Baptist was preaching and Jesus was preaching too. The kingdom of heaven, now here our translations disagree. There are four different ways of translating it. I, I will simply tell you the truth. That was a joke in case you... <laughs> I, I will tell you the way I think it should read, um, but I don't have time to defend the view here. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been forcefully advancing. It's advancing in power because... The hungry are being fed in the feeding of the 5,000. The, the blind are unable to see. The, the dead are raised. The gospel is preached to the poor. The very things that were mentioned back in the quotations from Isaiah. The gospel has been advancing since the onset of Jesus' ministry. Since the dawning of the kingdom. And violent people have been raiding it. That's approximately right. Wicked people have been trying to domesticate it or to hold it down. The next chapter is full of accounts of Pharisees and others trying to control Jesus or to control the blessings of the kingdom, saying, yeah, it's by the power of Beelzebub that you do these tricks. And, and they're confronting the kingdom. In other words, the kingdom has not come with a bang. That is what happens at the end of the age when Jesus comes back and it's too late. The division between chaff and grain takes place. But right now, the blessings are here. They've dawned. They've started. The bang hasn't happened yet. The final condemnation hasn't dawned. And so as a result, even though the king is, kingdom is forcefully advancing, wicked people are confronting it, raiding it, trying to exploit it. And some of that tension, of course, is still going on in our day, too. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. That is the Old Testament operated in such a way that it prophesied, it told of the coming of the kingdom until the days of John when the kingdom itself began. It started under the ministry of Jesus. And if you are willing to accept it, if you can accept this exposition of the Old Testament, he says, he, John the Baptist, is in fact the Elijah who was to come. That is the Elijah mentioned in verse 10 in the quotation from Malachi. John the Baptist is that figure, the one who is the messenger of the Lord, 
preparing the way for the Lord. And I am the visitor that John was pointing to. You see, that's how the argument flows through these verses. For the truth of the matter is, what's clear is that the crowd can become disenchanted with John the Baptist and the crowd can become disenchanted with Jesus. Short-term interest. There are some crowds that are like that. They're interested in the uh, novelty of something or other, but that doesn't mean that they're really loyal. So Jesus gives a, a, a little parable to explain. He pictures two groups of kids playing in the marketplace. One group is energetic and full of suggestions. Let's play weddings. You can be the bride and you can be the groom. You can be the officiant. We'll sing. We'll dance. We'll have something to eat. We'll we'll play weddings. Let's play weddings. And the other group of kids are real whiners. Oh, don't want to do that. Boring. We played weddings yesterday. Don't want to play that. All right, then let's play funerals. You can be the corpse. We'll get a piece of wood and lie down on the corpse. We'll have some people to carry the beer. And we'll have an officiant again. And Let's play funerals. This time we won't be happy dancing. We'll play dirges. We'll play funerals. It'll be fun. Boring. Don't want to do that. It's, it's, it's stuff we've done before. Don't want to play that. So Jesus explains. To what can I compare this generation? Verse 16. They're like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling out to others, we played the pipe for you and you did not dance. Happy suggestions. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking. That is, he was an ascetic. He was disciplined. No alcohol. Locusts and wild honey. Prophetic garb. Living on the edge of the desert. And you guys decided at the end of the day he was a bit over the top. Do you know? Anybody that's that conservative, that's that ascetic, he's got to be demon-possessed. He's got a demon. And John the Baptist came in this ascetic garb because he was, in fact, calling the nation to repentance, preparing the way for the Lord. Then Jesus himself comes and he goes to parties. He was known to have a glass. In fact, he turned water into wine in one of them. And he made some ridiculous friends. He knew not only tax collectors, but publics and prostitutes. He knew some of them himself. And you can tell a person by the friends he has, you know. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is proved right by her deeds. That is, wisdom was right for both men, for the role that John the Baptist played, calling people to repentance and turning away from sin and covering themselves in ashcloth and genuine repentance. Then his asceticism and his discipline and so on was part of his message. But Jesus comes and he's announcing the dawning of the kingdom. Let's have a party. The kingdom's here. No more death, no more sorrow. The consummation is around the corner. And so that was the role he played and the kinds of things that he did reflected that announcement of who he was. And in both cases, wisdom, wise conduct, was justified in, 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 in what was going on. You must understand John the Baptist's particular role in the sweep of redemptive history and what it does is point to who Jesus is. Now that's how the passage works. 
portrait of a discouraged Baptist, portrait of a defended Baptist, portrait of an eclipsed Baptist. And those who eclipse John the Baptist are people like you and me. Now let me conclude by indicating what this means for us today. Three applications. Number one. The deepest Christian criteria for greatness, individually and corporately, are not the criteria of the world. What makes you great? The criteria of the world include things like beauty, money, education, wealth, bloodlines, ethnicity. You know what I'm talking about. Yes, my... My daughter went to UCLA. Oh, how lovely. My son went to Harvard. <laughs> Nobody would be so crass as to say, so I'm better than you. But that's the overtone because our identity is bound up with either our education or our children's education. Or the kind of car you drive. Or where you live. Or the clothes you wear. Beauty, power, strength, always to be thought well of because you're identifying yourself and that's where your self-esteem comes from, by your own self-chosen identity. Today, we're moving identity into every arena. You choose your own gender. You choose your own ethnicity. Did you see the instance recently of a white woman who claimed she was black without an ounce of genetic evidence in her favor? But that's what she chose to be, so that's what she'll be considered. There's a case working its way through the courts in Britain now of a woman who is claiming to be a cat. You choose your own identity. And you expect everybody else to recognize it too. Sometimes the choices are more traditional. Your identity is bound up in how high you get in the company, how much power you have, how much authority you have, or how much money you make, or how you do in the stock market. And Jesus comes along and says, no, no, that's not where your identity lies. If, if that's where your identity lies, you're, you're living like a pagan. It's, it's, it's not that those things have no importance, but the same is true even of ethnicities. You're, you're, most of you are, are Korean-Americans. Pity those poor white dudes who just have one bit of background. We have the enrichment of something that's, that's combined and putting things together. And meanwhile, the white dudes themselves are saying, well, you know, those Korean-Americans are pretty, pretty responsible citizens. We, we like them, but of course, it's better to be white. Nobody would be quite so crass as to say either one, but... But deep down, our self-identities can be bound up in both confusion and in arrogance by the kinds of things we hold dear. Did you see? But supposing it's, it's more important to you to be identified as a Christian. 
And that brings us to the second point. Do you, do you see the first point is a negative one. The deepest Christian criteria for greatness individually or corporately are not the criteria of the world. But in the second place, Christian criteria for greatness are radically Christ-centered. You know Christ. You've had your sins forgiven. You're accepted by the living God. You know, many, many, many race problems would be cleaned up if the parties in dispute identified themselves not first and foremost of this ethnicity or that ethnicity, but first and foremost as Christians. And the same is true with tensions between rich and poor and educated, those who are brilliant at quantum mechanics even though they don't know which end of a screwdriver to hold and those who are brilliant with a pipe wrench but can barely read. But if they both know Christ, it changes all the dynamics. You're talking about family. Did you see? The unity of the church is not achieved simply by yelling unity of the church. It's achieved by members of the church identifying themselves first and foremost as Christians. But it's more than that. The last point. Christian criteria for greatness are radically tied to proclamation and witness. You see, it's not just that these people in this passage, these least in the kingdom, know Christ and have had their sins forgiven and have confidence before God. It's that they point out who Jesus is with more immediacy and clarity than John the Baptist could. In other words, they're bearing witness to who Jesus is. It's not just that they know Jesus and are private Christians who never say anything about their faith, but their greatness in Jesus' view, their greatness that established them as greater than Abraham is bound up with the fact that they point out who Jesus is with greater immediacy and clarity than Abraham could. So in that sense, somebody who understands this passage well will surely not want to be in a position where he or she never talks about Christ, never bears witness to Christ for months, years on end. They, they'll talk about football and the weather and the forthcoming Super Bowl and whatever, but they won't talk about Jesus and explain the gospel to others because they're embarrassed. So the very thing that establishes your greatness, the very thing that establishes your proper Christian identity, you don't do. That's why this theme is tied into a central Matthaean theme that brings us to the Great Commission in the 28th chapter. All authority is given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. Do you see? Because that is what is established by our identity as Christians. We know Christ. We love to make him known. It is such a privilege. This is not to lay on a guilt trip. Everybody goes home squirming. No, no, no. It's to lay on a sense of the privilege of being Christ's and of sharing with others who he is. And as we do that, 
and form our identity against what Jesus says is the most important thing in understanding our identity as human beings made in the image of God and blood-bought by Christ and his death. Thus we are carrying out the mission of the church, the mission of the gospel, and establishing who we are in Christ Jesus. What a privilege. Let us pray.